0: Our passage this morning will be John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. if anyone does not abide in, in me, he is thrown in away in, like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. So my thesis this morning is that when you have a, understanding that we are in a wartime mentality, that we're in a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That we're in a wartime mentality. It fixes your attention and gives you a purpose and leads to a stewardship of living your days out before the living God. This man died last September the 18th. His name is Stanislav Petrov. Stanislav Petrov was a leader in the nuclear movement in the Soviet Union. In fact, he designed and helped build a huge nuclear facility south of Moscow. And on the night of September the 26th, 1983, when he was 42 years of age, he was the officer in charge of the nuclear facility. It was an early warning system, codenamed OCO or I in German, whose function was to detect the launch of an American nuclear attack. Having helped design and install the command center, Petrov was at the controls on this fateful night when the sirens inside the massive bunker just south of Mount Moscow began to wail. The Oko system and its satellites were alerting the Russians to the launch of a U.S. ballistic missile followed in quick succession by four others. He says, quote, we built the system to rule out the possibility of false alarms or errors. And that day, the satellites told us with the highest degree of certainty that these rockets were on their way to create havoc in our nation. Close quote, it was up to Petrov to confirm the incoming attack of the, to his superiors who would then launch a retaliatory strike while the US missiles were still in the air. But as he looked at the data, Petrov says something doesn't seem right here. And so he didn't make the fateful phone call, which was an abrogation of orders and he decided not to do anything. He said, I didn't want to be the person responsible for World War III. It turned out that the alarms were false, obviously. Much later, it emerged that Soviet satellites had mistaken the sun's reflection in the clouds for the start of a nuclear holocaust. One one decision by a man who was fully alert saved millions of American lives. So, so when we're keenly alert, it gives us a focus. I was reading recently about a, a woman by the name of Tess Simpson. There's somebody's writing a pretty massive book um, about a movement in England in the, the beginning of World War II, or really the beginning of the Nazi reign, uh, about a, a group of people called the Academy of Assistance the Academics Assistance Council, Academics Assistance Council. And they were a group of people that got together. They were supported by Einstein and John Keynes, the famous economist, and other people. And, and they would take work to get PhDs who'd been kicked out of their positions in the Nazi-controlled territories, mostly, most all of them were Jews, and get them to England and the United States. And so this woman, who was really a... a An administrative assistant spent countless hours every day writing letters, sending telegraphs, calling embassies, pleading with ambassadors to get people out of Nazi-controlled areas into England and the United States. And this book says that this unheard of or really forgotten woman who was never married was responsible in part for getting 500 academics out of Nazi-controlled Germany, 500. Of those 500, there were among them 16 men who won the Nobel Peace Prize because she was faithful, because she understood that she was in a wartime situation and it made her very alert to what was going on. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul was writing to a minority church in a very difficult place, in a very difficult city, and yet he pleads with the minority church in a difficult place, in a difficult time, to wake up from their sleep. Romans 13, verse 11 says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling, not in jealousies, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says to this minority church in a difficult city, wake up. We are at war. The hour is late. The day is nearly gone. So you see stewardship is the constant fight for my joy, my usefulness, and the advancement of the kingdom of God, all to the glory of the living God. It's the constant fight. It's the ongoing battle To understand that I am at war, we are at war, and we live in such a way that we want to honor the living God in His triune glory and enjoy joy and usefulness under His hand. I'm not a movie critic, and I haven't seen all the movies that will be nominated this year for the Academy Award. I don't think I've seen two of them, to be honest with you. But the best movie I've seen in months that I believe deserves every award that can be given is the movie Dunkirk. What a great movie. Somebody said after the first service, they said, well, I couldn't understand them, the British accent was so thick. And I said, just hit subtitles. You no, know, that's easy, what well, I do. But go to Redbox and get it. It is a great movie. And it tells the story of the Battle of Dunkirk. Late May, early June, the French and the British armed forces were trapped on the beach of Dunkirk in France. 400,000 men. The Nazis were there. They were pushing them into the sea. The panzer divisions were poised for the final push. The British prime minister, a man named Winston Churchill, had only been prime minister for three weeks. And his war cabinet met, and they hoped to rescue thirty to 50,000 men. They were going to lose their whole army. And so a plea went out for all the pleasure crafts and the shrimp boats or fishing boats, whatever, to go across the channel and to pick up men and bring them back. And so the English maritime people responded with bravery as they were shot by the aeroplanes. And they didn't save 30,000 or 50,000, they saved 383,000 men. It's called the miracle of Dunkirk, as it should be. Because they understood they were in a wartime situation that demanded a response. So in this John 15 passage about abiding in Christ and being people who are fruit-producing disciples, there are three people on this stage. There is the one who calls himself the true vine. This is the seventh I am statement of the book of John. Jesus said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this, place says, I am the true vine. I nourish my people. And then you have the vine dresser, who is the father, and you have the branch, who, is, who are the people of God. And this passage says, unequivocally, without any shadow of a doubt, that God expects for his people to be fruit-bearing men and women. In fact, it says in verse 2, these words, he says, He says, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The issue is not have we made a profession of faith? The issue is do we possess our faith? Faith without works is dead. James 2, Matthew 7, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, many will say to him, not just a few, but many will say to him, Lord, did we not in your name cast out demons and preach and perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I will tell them very plainly, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So so I'm not arguing for perfection, but I'm arguing that the direction of our heart should be to obey the Lord and be pleasing to him. And as I read this passage, I have to ask myself, am I a man who is a fruit bearing Christian? As I look at my life, th- th- does, does my life speak of the reality of Christ? So well, what does it mean to be a fruit-bearing Christian? Well, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, so I, I back up and I say, well, as, as I grow in the Lord, do I see in my life evidence of growing love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, dealing with self control? Now, again, nobody is perfect, but is there a desire to be honoring to him and to go forward in faith? Am I a fruit bearing Christian? In the book of Isaiah, God talks about a vineyard he had planted and what he expected from the vineyard. And he says this, Isaiah 5, 1 and 2, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines, and he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Verse 7, for, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold there was only bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, but behold there was an outcry, or unrighteousness. In other words, God said, I, I look for justice and mercy, but there was bloodshed and greed. I I, I look for righteousness, but there is only an outcry of unrighteousness. And so, uh, am am I, are you a fruit-bearing Christian? In 1 Corinthians 3, there is an incredible image painted by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says that in the Christian faith, there's only one foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's Christ. Every believer foundation is Christ. He says, but on that foundation, some build with wood, hay, and straw, and others with gold, silver, and costly stones. And the wood, hay, and straw people do not understand a wartime mentality they don't understand that they are forfeiting joy and usefulness and gladness in the kingdom. And, and, and they're believers. They're believers. But he says, on the great day of judgment, when the fire comes, they will escape as if through the flames. Conversely, they're people building with gold, silver, and costly stones. They're good stewards of their time, their money, their talents. They want to be pleasing to God. They serve others. They have the joy of the Lord. And he says, and and, and their building will stand. And they will hear good, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there are many people sitting here in our worship services today who are building with gold, silver, and costly stones. That they're faithful in the way they live, in the way they give, in the way they serve, in the way they care. I mean, it's all, it's all a mixture. Nobody's perfect. But, but that, that's the majority report. There are others of you, and I don't know your heart. Quite frankly, you're building with gold, with a wood hay and straw. So, so you're, you're limiting your joy. You're limiting your usefulness. You're limiting God's ability to bless you because you're not being faithful unto the Lord. My plea to you this morning is that you, as you look at your life, as I look at my life, am I, are you a fruit-bearing Christian? See, is, 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 let me just say this. I want you to hear this. I believe, as i thought about this and studied this, I believe you can be a good parent Christian, a, a, a good spouse a good pastor kind of, sort of teacher, physician, accountant mechanic and not abiding Christ because you're building with wood, hay and straw you're not pressing into the kingdom you don't have the wartime mentality you aren't pleading with God by His Holy Spirit to work in your life you're not overflowing with joy and usefulness and so this morning I want to say as stewards we need to be Men and women who produce fruit to the glory of God. So, talk to you about three groups of people. Group number one are people who are merely professing Christians, but they're not believers. I mentioned those already. They, they, they profess faith, but they don't possess it. They, they give the words, but there's no life to back it up. They're, they're just, they're, they just don't. And in, in the book of Hebrews, there's a passage that deals with a very formidable issue in the church and and that is the issue of uh, staying strong in faith. And so the writer of Hebrews says this in verse seven and eight. He says, "For, for, for ground that drinks in the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is planted receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is close to being worthless, and it ends up being cursed and burned. It's very graphic language. Ground that receives the word, but yet it produces thorns and thistles, is not useful to the master. And if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and it's close to being cursed and ends up being burned. That's one group of people. They profess faith in Christ, but there's no difference. There's no heart for the Lord. There's no going for it. The second group of people are people who are believers, I, I think, but, but, but they're building with wood, hay, and straw. They don't understand, understand the wartime mentality. They don't really grapple with stewardship. Um, one of the most well-known passages of the Bible is the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And it's really on how you receive the word of God. The, the, the first type of person, it says the, the seed is thrown out and the birds gobble it up. Satan takes away the, the seed. That doesn't have any impact. The, the, the second person receives the word and something springs up, but it has no root, and so it dies. And then the third person or group, they, they receive the word and they develop a root system, but Christ uses broad categories. The cares of this world... The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things come in and it chokes the word and it makes it unfruitful. I think he he uses those broad categories very intentionally. The cares of this world, deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things choke the word and make it unfruitful. To me, that's wood, hay and straw. But then there's a fourth group He says, the fourth group receives the word with gladness and they develop a root system and they produce a crop 30, 60, 100 fold. This is what he says. It's very very simple. They receive the word and they accept it and they do it. A fruit bearing person is someone who receives the word of God. They accept it and they bear fruit. They build their lives and their destiny on the reality of Christ. They have a wartime footing. They, are, they say, God, let me build with gold, silver, and costly stones. This type of person spends much time, I believe, in meditating on John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. Listen, abide in me. Abide, abide. Abide in me. Cling to me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So I'm going to give you three statements now about how to abide in such a way that you bear fruit to the glory of God, to the advancement of the kingdom, and for your joy. Three, Three broad categories, and then a challenge. Number one, if I'm to abide and produce fruit, and build with gold, silver, and costly stones, and have a wartime mentality, I must embrace the goodness of the vine dresser who is Abba Father, and embrace it in difficult and dark times. You are never closer to the hand of the Father than when he is proving you for his glory. That's what the Bible teaches we embrace the living God in the hard and the difficult times. In the book of Job, the Old Testament, Job is a righteous man and loves God. And he, he loses his, all of his children die in a cataclysmic accident. He loses his livelihood. He loses his wealth. And then his body is full of ulcers and sores. And he has... Three friends who come and give him various advice, some okay, some not okay, and really the only thing that he really could have lost and would have profited from losing was his wife, and she still hung around. And her advice as a godly woman is, Job, curse God and die. Well, thank you for that, Mrs. Job. I needed to hear that. So, so this is Job, and yet, and yet in the midst of all this, Job gives this incredible statement, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And Job knew little of what we know about the glory and the goodness and the majesty of the triune God. And the power of the outpoured Holy Spirit. Or I think of the minor prophet, a guy named Habakkuk. It's three short chapters. And Habakkuk says, you know, he goes out and he says, you know, we're, we're not prospering. God's people aren't doing well. We're under some type of cloud and 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 God speaks to Habakkuk and Habakkuk ends his book by saying this, even though the vine doesn't produce any produce, even though the cattle produce no calves, I will trust in the name of the living God because he is God. And Habakkuk knew little of what we know today about the power of the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus the outpoured Holy Spirit. He saw that very dimly through the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I look at these men and I say, am I really trusting God? Do I, do I trust God in the dark? And there are people here who on a scale of 1 to 100 and a pain index, there are people here today who've walked through enormous pain. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. Cancer. Job misfortunes. Children who break your heart. And, and yet, they trust it. They trust it. And I love them for it. 1583, some German guys got together, really mostly two guys. They wrote something called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question may be the most outstanding question in the history of questions asked in catechisms. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death is I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has purchased for me peace with God and that not a hair can fall from my head without my heavenly Father's knowledge. And so the New City Catechism just released last year, their first question is a restatement of that question. Why is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if I'm to abide, brothers and sisters, I acknowledge the Abba Father goodness of the vine dresser who prunes me for my good and his glory. That's hard. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called "The Problem of Pain." It's a phenomenal book, and this is what he says. He says, "God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience." shouts to us in our pain it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world one of the greatest joys as I study the Bible is to realize that nothing comes into my life that doesn't first go through the nail scarred hands of my Savior that's an incredible comfort. John Owen was called the Prince of the Puritans. John Owen died in 1683 at the age of 67. He um, was brilliant. Went to Oxford and gave his, he was a Victorian. gave the valvictorian address in Latin, which happens at the Citadel every year as well. John Owen wrote, uh, the combined works of John Owen is 16 volumes, and each, each book is about 500 pages with footnotes in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is, this is 1683. Just isn't fair. John Owen had 11 children. They all survived birth, which was unusual, but uh, 10 of the 11 died before the age of 18. He buried his wife. He said this. He says to a friend, he says, learn to be contented with your lot. Our wise heavenly father gave you exactly what is necessary for your good. Had he known that you needed more, you would have been given it. On his deathbed, he was dictating letters up until the moment he died, and his secretary was standing, was sitting there taking notations, and Owen said, please tell my friends, I am leaving the land of the living. He said, no, no, no stop. Tell my friends, I'm leaving the land of the dying, and I'm going to the land of the living. John Owen. One of my other heroes is a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758 at the age of 55. He was a pastor for 26 years, and his church voted him out of his pulpit because he believed that the Lord's Supper was only for believers. Long story, wild story. He became a missionary in the wilds of New Jersey at that time, and labored for seven years with uh, taking the gospel to the Indians or the Native Americans, and then he was asked to be the president of Princeton, now University, then college. He goes to Princeton at the age of 54, right before his 55th birthday. He is inoculated with smallpox vaccine, and he catches smallpox, and he dies. His wife, wife, um, Sarah, who was a godly woman, had 10 children, 10 children. Nine were surviving. One girl, Jerusha, had died at the age of 17. Uh, Sarah Edwards was, uh, just as a aside, Jonathan Edwards was 20, he was a theological student, he goes to the home, he meets this 13 year old girl named Sarah Pierpont, and he says, there is an angelic being who walks with God, and then says, there's a really good looking gal that I want to get to know, but she's 13, I'm 20, can't do it yet, he waits a few years, goes back and the courts and they get married. Wonderful marriage. Edwards dies though, his wife is packing up the house, getting ready to move to Princeton, and receives word that her husband's dead. There's no safety net, there's no social security, there's no insurance policy. There's a woman with children and grandchildren. And she writes a letter to her daughter, Esther, telling her about the death of her husband. And This is what she says, and I think it's one of the most beautiful statements I've ever read in my life. It's a short letter, but boy. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him so long, but my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah. She she acknowledges that it is horrible. The Lord, she says, has covered us with a dark cloud. It's a dark cloud. It's horrible. But he's God. And he's made me adore his goodness. That we had him so long. My God lives and he has my heart. You see, if I'm to abide in Christ, I've got to wake up every day and say that, that Abba Father, the Son, the Spirit are good. And they love me and they care for me, and I will trust them in the dark. Number two, if I'm to abide, I must make a conscious will to abide. I've got to make a conscious will to do so. See, we talk about the means of grace, and very quickly, the means of grace are, are, are some of them. Studying the Bible, praying, worshiping on the Lord's day, being involved with God's people in fellowship, being people who, who... who rejoice in being with believers and whose lives are being fashioned by those around them. Those are the means of grace. And if we, if we don't have the means of grace, we limit God's ability to impact and teach our lives. So, so we need to be people who, who accept the word of God and to, who believe it and who do it. We need to be people who have the same mindset. I, I look at the means of grace like this, my illustration in the gospels, there's a man who's blind, his name is Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus is blind, and he hears about a miracle worker who's coming down the, the main avenue. And so he asks one of his buddies, he says, could you put me on the roadside of the main avenue, at the corner of Elm and Oak? Let me be right there. Because I hear this miracle worker is going by. And, 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 and he starts crying out with all of his might, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his friends say, be quiet, you're blind. Which is a statement, they believed a statement of God's disapproval. So so you're you're blind, be quiet. He can't be bothered with the likes of you. But he keeps crying with all of his might. Jesus hears him, he stops, he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, I want to see. I want to see. May you see. Boom, he can see. (sighs) To me... Being with God's people on the Lord's day, reading the Bible, being in fellowship, praying, thinking God's thoughts after him as I meditate on the Bible is like blind Bartimaeus. I'm on the road. I'm saying, Lord, I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to plead for you by your power, Holy Spirit, to teach me. And sometimes, i got to be honest, I read the Bible, or I'll read a book that I think is a good book, and I'm going, I don't, I, th- th- that didn't really charge my heart that much, but sometimes it does And so if I'm to abide, I've got to consciously put myself in the place of of blessing. If you want to produce fruit, brothers and sisters, if you want to be able to go silver and costly stones, you've got to put yourself in the path of blessing. You've got to be with God's people. You've got to read good books. You've got to read and love the Bible. To produce fruit, you hear it, you accept it, and you do it. Just simple. So... So I've got to do that. My third point is this. If I'm to abide in Christ, I've got to understand simultaneously my union with Christ and the glory of the gospel and see my sin. First of all, the glory of the gospel. Colossians 1 says, know the gospel because all over the world this gospel is growing and is producing fruit. When I understand the goodness of God and dying on the cross for my sin, then no one can snatch me from his hand that I am in Christ forever. It makes joy ring in my heart. So we talk about that a lot. But simultaneously, I've got to understand my sin. Calvin says, you've got to be so stricken by your own sin that you are compelled to seek the face of God. Think about that. When I see my sin, it pushes me to say, Lord, you are the vine. I am a branch. If I abide in you, I can produce fruit, but apart from you, I can't, I can't do. I cannot be a man of kindness without you. I can't really be a man of patience without you. So, so is it's the gospel and my sin simultaneously? I want you to see that. That's, that's my point. I was having a conversation recently with someone that's very dear to me, and, and they said, I've come to this conclusion. That they said, I believe that people that really go for it in the name of Christ, and he's a very committed believer, are usually people who have been involved in big sins. So you should think about it. Think about the people that really are going for it in the name of Christ. A lot of times there are people who have been involved in horrific marital breakups or they've been to a, a drug abuse, substance abuse, or maybe they've been to prison, or maybe they've… said, example, the Apostle Paul. It's the Apostle Paul. Yeah, Paul. He wrote 12, maybe 13 books of the New Testament. He was, he was with it. See, the Apostle Paul, he says, as a Pharisee who was misguided and zealous and arrogant, either helped kill or hardly approved of the murder and the persecution of Christians. He was a bad dude. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He said, yeah. And he changed. It's just, I think he said part of his change is, Man, he was a bad guy. I said, yeah. I said, really, you're kind of echoing the, par- the, 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 the teaching and the, the Bible, the parable Jesus gave, but I think you're misunderstanding it because Jesus gave a parable where um, he said this. He said, he who's been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much will love much. I said, yeah, we misunderstand that parable. It's not saying that if you've been on death row or if you've done this or done that and you kind to know Christ and you're going to really love him, it just means that you see the depth of the sin of your own heart. You're no longer a Pharisee, you're a broken man. I said, but look at the Apostle Paul. He says in one of his earlier books, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse nine, I'm the least of the apostles. Which is kind of like saying, I was the backup to Deshaun Watson, at quarterback. It's it's not exactly, or, or John, Elway. Couldn't think of his last name. That's how quick I am. Um, least of the apostles. you go. well, the apostles are pretty good. But five years later, in Ephesians 3 in verse 8, he says, I'm the least of the saints. Believers. And then near the end of his life in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And he said, this is as you walked with the Lord and said, here's my point. I believe the more you see the character and the glory and the goodness of Christ, the more you become aware of your sin. And the more humility is birthed in your heart. and you plead for mercy. John Newton wrote a poem. I'm just gonna read it to you, it's it's a great poem. John Newton was a slave trader who became a believer, immoral man, became a believer. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He was an Anglican pastor. This is five stanzas, but it is so rich. Just listen to it. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, had answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I had hoped that in some favored hour at once it answered my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, I prayed, God, increase my faith and my love and my diligence. And I thought he just, I was hoping he'd just come down and boing, hit me, you know? Listen. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? But the Lord replied, "'Tis in this way I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free." and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. He said, he said, he said I pray, God, let me grow in grace. And instead of, of just boinging me, he, he says, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Do, 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 do you sense that? You see, you see the glory of the gospel and you see your sin and the sin drives you to Christ. Give you an example. It's a safe example. It's an embarrassing example. It's about me. My wife's not here. She's on the but by the way. uh, uh, I got in bed last night at 12:30. I was supposed to arrive Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, but the part of Washington State where my son lives, let me make this brief. I got up at 3:30 Friday morning went to the airport for 5:45 flight. Drove down to Icy Mountain, got there. Everything's canceled. Sir, to get you out of here and get you to Charleston, you're going to have to take a shuttle, a bus across the mountains into Seattle. I did that. The bus broke down on the interstate for four hours. Got to Seattle, spent an um, unmemorable night in Seattle. Got up early the next morning for a six o'clock flight to Portland, to Dallas, to Charleston last night. So... I told my friend about that, and he said, well, on Sunday, you'll be sleeping through your sermon and joining me as I sleep. So if I'm not making sense, forgive me. But anyway, this is what happened to us. We were getting ready for Christmas, Christmas gathering, had to go to the store on the 23rd to buy some things. As, as a background, uh, my wife is very health conscious, and when I was first married, I drank whole, whole milk. And so she encouraged me to go to 2%. So I went to 2%. And then after a while, 1%. And I went to 1%. And then she said, skim. I said, I can't go there. I just could not. So I'm the 1% guy. And, uh, but in the last few years, a couple of years, she's become convinced that I need to drink organic milk. Now, if you haven't priced it out, organic milk is about almost $4, $5 a gallon. Uh, regular milk, 1%. Two sixty-five to two eighty a gallon, and I just—we have this ongoing debate. I said, "Really? Do I have to get organic milk?" She says, "Yes." And uh, I've even come to the point of saying I I can't reach out and get it because it's just existential angst to pay that much for milk. And so, anyway, I I said to her, "I said, I'm I'm sixty-four. If the Lord gives me twenty-one more years." And I drink organic milk. That will add about 13.5 hours to my life. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. So anyway, we're shopping. We're at the grocery store. I'm not paying any attention. I'm kind of looking around until they say, that'll be $35, sir. I said, $35? I said, it's just just that many groceries. I'm like, good grief. I walked out. I put... Half gallon of organic milk, four dollars and fifty one cents, and I said, "Are you kidding me?" She says, "Well, they didn't have the gallon, which is normally four fifty, so I got the half gallon for $4.50. I said, "You're kidding me." I I, I got sullen and kind of angry, and and then about two minutes later, I was embarrassed that I was angry, and, and then. I was so embarrassed. I was angry. I did what a lot of us guys do. I just withdrew and pounded, which is a very godly thing to do. <laughs> and, 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 and so about three hours later, after our wonderful day, had wonderfully was turned upside down and came to her and said, I, I am I'm sorry. I, that's a half gallon of milk. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. So I was laying in bed that night, recounting the day and I thought, you are an idiot. Thank you for not saying amen. I I was really afraid. That was was putting it out there. But but, but, um, I said, you married 38 years to a wonderful woman and you're upset about a half gallon of milk. What's wrong with you? You see, that's a safe illustration, but it, it drives me to understand that I've got to be abiding in Jesus. I desperately need the mind of Christ. And, and, and so I've got to see the grace of Christ and my sin simultaneously. Are you producing fruit? Let me give you this. This is a closing challenge, and I'll do this very quickly. The book of Genesis. There's a man named Abraham, and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you the father of many nations. You are going to establish The line of my covenant people and so he marries a woman named Sarai and Sarai cannot conceive and so he says well maybe I should help God out with his promises and so he takes Sarai's handmaiden a woman named Hagar and they have a baby and they name him Ishmael and Abraham says may Ishmael live before you and God says that's not what I was talking about and so in Genesis 17 it says and Abraham the Lord came to Abraham and the Lord said to him, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now, now she's in her 90s. Abraham's almost 100. And, and after the service, I said, maybe you could have a baby that old because you drank organic milk every day. No? No? <laughs> He says, I, I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face before God. And he laughed. And I said, That's me. See, God appears to you and he says, you know, I am supernatural. I am the God of all creation. I am the triune God of glory. And I'm going to do something in your life. And and you say, wow. And you fall on your face in worship as you should. But inside, you laugh. And you say, really? I'm this old and you're going to do this with me? So so, here's, here's my challenge. Get one person kind of a prayer partner, and, and, and just say, this year, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to see God do this in my life. And, and this is outside of, of my natural bent. I want to see God make me more passionate about the salvation of people around me to such a degree that I verbally tell them about something about Jesus once every month. I want, to, I want God to build a prayer life in my heart that causes me to get up in the morning and spend a few minutes in prayer, and at night I will write down a few thoughts to, to build my prayer life. I, I want to be involved in the fellowship of the local church by doing this. I mean, so, so, something that God calls you to listen, God calls you to, and because He calls you to it in the Bible, you fall on your face, but as you do it, you laugh because you say, It's not going to happen with this guy. God wants to do that in your life by the Holy Spirit. He wants to work in you. He wants to cause you and teach you and show you to build with gold, silver, and costly stones to His glory and the advancement of His kingdom and for your good. So church, let's fall on our face before God because He's God and, and let's trust His promises and not laugh but say, God, by your Holy Spirit, do this in my life. Hmm. Lord, thank you for the day and for the the clarity of what you say in John 15. And Lord, it says that this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. I pray that we would bear much fruit to the glory of the Father. I pray that we would overflow with love and joy and peace and patience kindness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. I pray we would love and pursue justice. That we'd be brokenhearted, glad people to the glory of your name. And Lord, I I pray that we would do this Abraham challenge, that we would fall on our face before you. And even as we laugh over something that the scripture says we should be doing, that we say, Lord, I'm, I'm gonna do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do it. So forgive me for laughing even when I'm worshiping, because you're good and glorious and you change us in Jesus' name. Amen.